It's already been a joyous time of worship, hasn't it? To pray and to sing as we've done, to assemble in such a fashion that we, of course, give our homage to one far, far greater than any of us, and one who holds the affairs and the movements through time all in his hand. Often the human family, in terms of the best that we can often do, we're so short-sighted. What appears to be the best course of action often turns out to be not quite so. Aren't you thankful to worship a God who, in fact, is eternal? And one who is so powerful in that through the Word of God, He has specified what will be for your best and for mine. Tonight, why don't we give some thought for the next few moments of our period of worship to a lesson I've entitled, Implements of Murder. Now, the title, I hope, will be somewhat suggestive of that which is to follow. But along the course of that, I hope you have your Bible so that we can study and look at a few of the features of the Word of God together. These introductory thoughts are those which I hope that we'll be able to use. In an, in an introductory way, on this slide, a number of features I thought that could have been mentioned and I chose not to make the list too lengthy. You and I know very well that it seems on a very frequent basis there are issues that are troubling those who will enter some kind of public place with a gun and end up taking a number of lives. In Connecticut, there was a lot of children killed, of course, at a school not long ago. You and I can remember a movie theater in Colorado. There have been incidents in Louisiana, Baltimore, Chicago, and the list seemingly goes on and on. And in all those instances, it seems one matter almost immediately that rises after that is a demand for greater control of guns. A demand such that there often needs to be such finely restricted laws that it would preclude and prevent something like that from happening. Tonight, as you and I let the Word of God be a direction, I would hope that we could perhaps shed some consideration or at least develop some matters that might help us appreciate matters like these. They are bothersome and they're troubling. Our heart aches and yearns, but more than anything else for a nation that is in the midst of a quagmire like this. And so as we close that slide, why don't we think tonight about what the Word of God has to say on matters like these. As we do that, let's turn the slide and come to this one I have wished that we would consider in the following way. Human life. The life that is human life, although you and I have so often reflected upon it, it nonetheless ceases to be so utterly basic in that it is a guarding matter for so many particulars in terms of decision and in terms of the principles of our culture. You and I know well that in God's creative activity, that on the sixth day He came, of course, after the completion of the creation of the animal kingdom, he created Adam. Adam was a man. He was not an ape. He was not a gorilla. He was not some kind of glorified animal in any fashion. He was completely different, distinct, and distinguished from every one of the animal kingdom because Adam was made in the image of God. And that wasn't said about any of the animals. It was with regard to Adam that it said, "...let us make man in our image." That word man is the same word in Hebrew that means Adam. Let us make Adam in our image. And so it was that the God of heaven fashioned man. 
this man was such that God again bequeathed to him and made him not just flesh and bone, but rather an immortal spirit. Adam had a capability of distinguishing right from wrong. He had a conscience. He had capability of learning and appreciating and implementing that which he was told to do that was right. And he also had a conscience that would bother him when he chose not to do that. Adam was very different from any animal. You'll notice in light of that, that that creative activity brings us to contemplate later in Paul's refrain as he preached in Acts 17, 25. Isn't it true that with regard to God's creation, it is He who giveth us life and breath and all things. There is no life apart from God. There is no essence. There is nothing along that line without His initiation. And yet, as you and I appreciate that very matter, that again makes the human life extremely different from an animal. You'll notice in that next passage, when God created Adam, do you recall that scene in Genesis 2 verse 7 with me? A somewhat summary statement, but nonetheless one very telling. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Later in Job 33, 4, that great gentleman of that book proclaimed so powerfully that the Spirit of God is within me, and so long as that's true, I have life. Isn't it amazing then to consider and to reflect on that special set of characteristics? In Zechariah 12, verse number 1, that minor prophet of many centuries later would, of course, make comment that it is the God of heaven who forms the spirit of man within him. At the time of conception, a remarkable thing, of course, occurs. Not only is there the origination, if you please, of a human life, but that human life is such that it is an immortal spirit. As that body develops in the womb of the mother, all the while that spirit continues, of course, to be alive. And even after the time of birth... We appreciate that again there's an immortal spirit that's here. It's not just a matter of tissue. It isn't just a matter of flesh, blood, and bone. It is for those reasons you and I might notice that from the earliest times, humans have had a sense that then the taking of human life, the taking of human life is certainly fraught with great problems You'll notice I've asked you to refer with me to even some matters taken from the book of Genesis. Isn't it true that in Genesis 4, verses 1 and following, the very first murder is recorded. Cain and Abel had, of course, brought their offerings to God, and God was pleased with Abel's, but He was not satisfied or pleased with Cain's. And as a result of that, it was true, wasn't it, that Cain slew his brother, the text says in Genesis 4, 8. Cain slew his brother, took his life. Rather than to conform his consideration and to change his mode of behavior and thinking, I'll take the life of my brother. And you may remember that in the sentence and the aftermath of that, Cain himself, of course, had a curse placed upon him, and didn't he himself affirm that when any man shall find me, they shall slay me? He was under the illusion, the impression that what I've done is so innately wrong that others will in fact take vengeance upon me and they'll take my life. Later in that same chapter, Lamech, you'll notice references made to him in verses 23 and 24. He too committed murder. 
He took the life of another, and he too was under the impression that I have done what was not right. And as such, I too may well be under the burden and load of some kind of vengeance that some may take. Perhaps finally, you and I might even appreciate words given to Noah. After the flood, there were only eight people on earth. That's it. Eight. Noah, his wife, the three boys and their three wives. Now you and I would quickly say none of them were murderers. None of them. Why then did God, in Genesis 9, 4, to them give the impression, the statement that this is a way of life that I would wish for the entirety of the human family from this time onward to understand. If somebody takes the life of another with premeditation, committing murder, then their life can be taken. God never said that about any animal. In fact, God even took the lives of animals for sacrifice, for the consideration by which you may remember Abel's sacrifice was well considered by God. God fully approved of that, but it was not so with human life. It is true that, it, that so many times later in the Old Testament, God gave words that sound very similar to these to His people Israel. Brother Vestal read a moment ago from the Ten Commandments, and the sixth one basically was this, Thou shalt not kill. Now other translations simply render that, Thou shalt not commit murder. Now you and I know well that there was the possibility of accidental death. In fact, the cities of refuge were commissioned by God for that purpose. Someone could flee to that if you accidentally had taken the life of another. But they were not to be used for any premeditated case. So it is, God said, don't commit murder. In Deuteronomy 5, He reiterated that to the people just before they entered Canaan. Surely in light of all those things, you and I can understand that as that side closes, God even provided capital punishment. To that person who with premeditation took the life of another, that person's life was also to be taken. That person had committed something that by its very nature, soul was to be considered that that person's life was to end in this flesh. Last Sunday evening, you and I gave some thoughts to capital punishment, and we in fact gave some appreciation to that, and murder was one of them listed. As you and I close that slide, may we quickly say the New Testament carries right forward this thinking, doesn't it? In Romans 13, verse number 9, the Apostle Paul, in his wonderful directions to the church in Rome, he in fact quoted a number of the Ten Commandments, including this one, Thou shalt not kill, and he asserted its needfulness to the church in Rome. You and I still know today then that God doesn't approve of murder. You and I know well that our nation, at least in many ways, approves of it wholeheartedly, at least in the form of killing babies. We seem to be happy with that. But this lesson tonight isn't so much about that. Implements of murder. As we turn the slide over to the next one, let's be very careful as we define what murder is. How is God using this term? And once we've defined it, let's make some additional applications and some additional observations. Murder is the deliberate premeditated act by which human life is taken or exterminated. 
This is the very thing, of course, that God condemned. In the patriarchal law, He said it was not to be. Under the Mosaic age, it wasn't to be. In the Christian age, it isn't to be. Human life is to be respected. It is to be looked upon for the character with which the God of heaven invested it. It is for that reason, you and I might notice, that murder through the Word of God is reminded to you and me that it's the work of the devil. The devil is the one who wishes human life to be disrespected. It's the devil that wishes human life to be looked upon as trivial or perhaps insignificant. It's human's life that he would want us to look upon as unimportant. God, on the other hand, says this being, this is a human being and he's invested with an immortal spirit. He'll never die. And isn't it true then that those who commit murder... They are taking from that person the opportunity of that person to obey the gospel. And if that person isn't a Christian, he's just died lost, and he'll be forever one in hell. You see, committing murder is then eternally important. When a person with premeditation takes the life of another, you are taking from that person opportunities he or she may have had one day to learn and obey the gospel. One day to be a wholesome and godly citizen, not only here, but to be prepared for hereafter. Murder is that significant then. You'll notice furthermore, several times in the New Testament, references to this act of murder are made as a result again of who is the source. I would ask you to notice in John 8 verse 44, As Jesus was referring on that occasion, He, in fact, in that single verse, highlighted a number of activities, not only lying, but also murder. And He said that the devil is the originator. He's the father of these things, and He has been since the beginning. Who was it that motivated Cain to take the life of his brother? The devil did it. Who was it that motivated Lamech to take the life of the one whom he slew? The devil did it. Those who appreciate and respect the laws of God will honor human life. They'll not with premeditation exterminate it. Surely in light of that, when we come to Matthew 15, 19, we notice something very interesting, very vital. Could I call to your attention these words from the lips of our Savior? In Matthew 15, beginning in verse number 18, we read the following. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man." The Pharisees had approached our Savior and they were rather agitated by the fact that those were eating and they hadn't washed their hands. The Lord used that as an opportunity to impress upon them the fact what really defiles a person and from whence do those defiling matters arise. The Lord for all eternity has set before us this observation. They come out of the heart, whether it be fornications, murders, Evil speakings, evil thoughts, they all arise out of the heart. And so for you and me today, where do murders come from? It's out of the heart of man. It's men who have failed to understand the purpose for which they were made and their purpose for living on this planet. 
those who have failed to understand the very concourse and means of life, and those who have given no reflective thought, it would seem, on the integrity, the character, and the nature of human life. The act of murder, then, is not the gun's fault. It has come from the one who, in fact, held it and who had failed to appreciate what was occurring and that which was the moment at hand. Isn't it interesting, then? Jesus said, murders come out of the heart of man. That person who is, such, who is filled with such hatred, that one who is filled with such animosity or perhaps just plain old carelessness, that in fact these things have happened. Let us look even further. In Mark 7, 21, in Mark's account of this, we remember on that occasion that again a rather extensive list was given. And one more time, the master himself, that great teacher that he was, he asserted that murder comes out of the heart of man. Today, isn't it true then that when individuals make the choices that they do, be it sinful matters like fornication, sinful matters like lying, sinful matters like murder, those things have arisen from a heart that's separated from the God that made it, a heart that isn't directed toward the place that would be respectful of the law of God, a heart, you see, that is not where it should be. Maybe in light of that, these commandments at the bottom would lead, I think, each of us to say this. The atrocities that we've seen around our land, and I by no means would wish to diminish any of them. It's a tragedy of tremendous order. The lives that have been lost because someone takes a gun and goes into a public place, be it a theater, a school, a post office, a courthouse, wherever it may be, and proceeds aimlessly to take the lives of those who are therein present. But may I say, it just isn't the fault of the gun. It's the fault of the person and by and large a society that's lost its way. Our anchor is gone. Our anchor is not anchored to where it ought to be any longer. We, by and large, are a nation far too often wandering aimlessly, thinking that we ourselves have the answers, and therefore we take measures, and individuals act foolishly. And in so doing, they harm and take the lives of others. Reminds us very much of Jeremiah 7, 28, doesn't it? Here, the nation of Israel themselves, for so long equipped with the knowledge of the Word of God, and yet by that time, God through Jeremiah said, This is a nation that obeyeth not God. I don't know how much plainer that could have been. God said that. He didn't just say that they were a nation choosing poorly. He said they just don't know me any longer. No wonder the problems in the book of Jeremiah were erupting. No wonder the society was in a chaotic mess. It's somewhat reminiscent of a pathway along which any nation will go that forfeits its knowledge of God. And sure enough, as you and I notice, Jeremiah 17 verse number 9, not many chapters forward from where we were just noting. By that time, again, God through Jeremiah commissioned him, challenged him, and ordered him to say, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? When man thinks he can contrive his own answers in his own way, when he thinks he can find his own thoroughfare, things are not going to be good. 
No wonder Jeremiah 10, 23 says about the folly and the foolishness. For it's not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. Now, as you and I close that slide together, I believe we have reached a point of appreciation. As tragic and as sad as all of these catastrophes are, and it pains us to think that we're in a nation who doesn't even know how to approach the resolution of it. And yet you and I as Christians know exactly what the problem is. The problem is America has a heart problem. And I don't mean a cardi- one a cardiologist can fix. The problem is our heart is misdirected. We don't respect human life as a nation. We can see that by the number of abrupt killings, thousands of them every day. And our government supports it. The legislators on so many occasions, in fact, lift up the hands of encouragement to those who would do it and demand that such is exactly and absolutely right. And oddly enough, something fundamental seems to happen from the time before the baby's born until afterwards. Suddenly it was fine before, but it's not anymore. That's nonsense. But yet you and I, again, as we consider murder tonight, we live in a nation whose heart just doesn't respect the laws of God on so many levels the way it once did. Those things lead me to the next slide, wherein we will again look into the Word of God and ask, so if our nation is so intent on just casting a spotlight on something like a gun and to lay all the blame, at least in the mind of many, upon that alone. I would ask you to reflect at least for a few moments on what are some of the other implements in the Bible. You know, in Bible times, they didn't have access to guns. How were murders committed? When the Bible gives us a record that murder was committed, how was it done? How was it carried out? What implement was used? And I wonder today, ought we to ban and outlaw all of these implements as well? Let's read about some of them, or at least study them over the last section of our lesson tonight. You may first appreciate with me that the book of Genesis starts our discussion. There are many murders in the Bible for which we are not given what the implement was. We don't know, for instance, what Cain used to kill his brother. The text doesn't say. Was it a rock? Did he strangle him? We just don't know. But by the time we get to Genesis 34, we are told what was used by some of Jacob's boys to take the lives of the Shechemites. We're told they used swords. And so here again, the Bible tells us, here were two of the sons of Jacob, and they were so upset about the rape of their daughter, their sister Dinah, that they went in and made a false allegiance with the Shechemites. And then, when the Shechemites, after the matter of circumcision had been carried out, when the men were all in a position, let's say, that was not in a matter to defend the city, these sons of Jacob went in and killed all the men. They committed murder. They used swords to do it. You'll notice that's only the first, though, because what about Abimelech's armor-bearer? Later, as you and I arrive at Judges 9, verse 54, we remember that there was a man named Abimelech. He had been one who had carried out a number of interesting features, and he had been a powerful man, but yet a woman. Threw a rock out of a high story and hit him on the head. 
didn't kill him, but he didn't want it ever to be said that a woman ultimately took his life. And so he admonished his armor bearer, thrust me through with your sword, and he did it. Perhaps I should say that Abimelech took his life in light of that sword. Look at yet another one. In Judges chapter 3, we notice that a dagger was used here to take life. A particular story that's been a favorite one in our family had to do with Eglon and Ehud. And you and I remember, of course, that Eglon was one who on that occasion was such that his life was taken by Ehud. He used a dagger to do it. Now, Ehud was one of the judges of Israel, and this, of course, was a sentence to free Israel from its captors or those who were overlording it over them. But a dagger was used. What about another one? In Judges 4, verse 21, at this point, again, might we ask, should all of these things be outlawed? The next one you may find interesting. What about a hammer and a nail? It was on that occasion that Jael used a hammer and a tent peg to take the life of Sisera. The scene was a very intriguing one. Sisera, of course, had been a part of those who were carrying out a great deal of overlording matters again to the children of Israel. And yet as the time came, we remember that Sisera was fleeing from the very people of God, but yet he hid in the, in the tent of a man named Eber. Eber's wife was a woman named Jael. And while Sisera was hiding under the rug, if you please, thinking that he had escaped all those men that were chasing him, she slipped to him very quietly and using a hammer and a tent peg, drove it through his temple and killed him. Should we outlaw that too? What about as we come to the bottom? In 2 Samuel 2.23, there we have record again about the days of David. Interestingly enough, Abner was the one in the spotlight on this occasion. There were three boys, and one of them was named Asahel. Asahel, you see, was one whom Abner ultimately brought to his own demise. As he did that, notice he used a spear to do it. Should we outlaw those as well? May I submit to you, there are many things used in the Bible in a way to commit murder. The list, however, does go on. As we turn the page, if you will, and come to the next one, as we arrive at 2 Kings 8.15, maybe one of the most intriguing records of murder. This time, the gentleman before us was a man named Hazael. As you look, though, at the scene and the development, what was the matter utilized to bring about the death on this occasion? Shockingly, amazingly, it was nothing but a wet rag. Should we outlaw them today too? As the plots continue to thicken and to give appreciation again to those matters utilized by sometimes creative ways throughout the ages. The next one is this in 2 Kings 9, 24. Jehu, who ultimately would occupy a rather pivotal role in ancient Israel, notice on this occasion he took the life of Jehoram using a bow and arrow. Now, one by one, as we list and at least give thought to each of these, we notice they were utilized to take human life. Everything from a dagger, a spear, a bow and arrow, a wet cloth, a, a hammer and a tent peg. What about the next one? In Second Chronicles 24, 
we have another interesting record again of the taking of life. This time it was Joash, but notice with me what you would appreciate the implement that he used. Rocks. We have a lot of them in Jackson County. Imagine if he outlawed that. Maybe it's enough to consider then that as all of these elements and all of these matters were used, doesn't it challenge one to appreciate it's not the, ent the entity itself, it's who's using it and what is it being used for? A wet rag could even be used to take life if the interest of the person is toward that end. Even a rock could be used to take life. And wasn't it true? Often in the Old Testament, God commanded the use of stoning. And so stones could be used in a very deadly way. They could also be used, though, to provide a foundation for a building. Let's continue our list. You'll notice that in 2 Chronicles 25, verses 11 and following, there's a very interesting scene. In fact, it's so intriguing to notice the means by which death was brought about on this occasion. The gentleman involved, Amaziah, the victims, the Edomites. I would invite you to consider at some point how he used strategically a high place to do it. He, in other words, arranged himself, or should I say those who were his supporters, in a high place and they merely perched themselves on a ledge. Should we outlaw ledges? Should we outlaw high places, if you please? Maybe it is in light of all of that. You and I arrive at then some observations. I chose those as a sampling of the Bible's record of murders. By no means is the list exhaustive. As you arrive later in the books of the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, Ezekiel and some of the others, we have other creative references to the means by which death was brought about. But for now, couldn't we at least say these things? The New Testament casts a strong spotlight and you and I have studied it. We understand that it's still the will of God that we not commit murder. But didn't John lift those appreciations ever so high when he said, If you hate your brother then you've committed murder against Him. And doesn't it encourage you and me to be people who love as God would wish us to love them? To have a desire to in fact have the embodiment of the love identified in the New Testament? You see, when we speak about murder and God's consideration of it in His Holy Word, isn't it true that we find that it's the mentality, the mindset of the one behind the implement that determines the nature of how it's used. And that's true in our day as well. Surely as you and I conclude that slide, wouldn't you and I be quick to say the problem that needs to be solved is that Jesus Christ is just much too absent. Our country needs Him. We need Him. We need His law. We need His gospel to dwell within the hearts and minds of individuals and that will solve our nation's problems. That will be what's needed. Laws that control guns by themselves is not going to be the answer. I'm not suggesting there might not be wise things that could be done, but that's not the total solution. It can't be. For all of these things have highlighted that murders can be committed with so many different things besides guns. Aren't you and I thankful for the Word of God? Thankful for the message of truth. Thankful for those words that can lead us so successfully through this life and make preparation for an eternity beyond. 
And not an eternity in a t- place of torment and misery, but eternity in a place of sweetness and blessing. Eternity in a place where there is the very presence of the very one who died for us. As we turn the slide to our final observation of the night, along the way of our study, we've been reminded of the special character of human life. God made it. It's an immortal spirit and how sweet and special it is and how honored we are to be able to be those who can learn the Word of God and obey it. In addition to that, we saw the source of these murders was the misdirected matters in the lives of individuals. Their hearts were such that that prompted them to do these things. And of course, that's still the problem today. As you and I would encourage each other, and we have done it as we've sung tonight, admonishing one another to be faithful and true to God, to think about that sweet place beyond the Jordan. It might be that there's someone in the audience who would wish to rededicate your life to Jesus. He is the one with the answers for the problems of your life and mine. The problems may not be murder, admittedly, but any time those problems arise, isn't it the fact the Master said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many a soul is languishing under a burden, a difficult matter of oppression. Jesus is the way, you know, the way, the truth, and the life. He does invite you to come tonight. If you would have a need to do that in a public way, we'd be honored to receive you, to help you, to encourage you, to to rededicate your life. We would pray to God as you repent and confess those sins. He's promised to forgive them. Maybe, though, you'd like to become a Christian. As you would make that decision, be the greatest decision you'll ever make. It's a decision that will guide all the remaining days of your life and lead you with faithful living into the sweet arms of eternity. Tonight, if we could be of help in any of these ways, or merely as a prayer for encouragement, we'd be delighted to do that. At this moment, this song of encouragement has been chosen and been selected, and if there's be one or more that would wish to come, why not do it now? While together we stand and sing.